This is Future of Work Pioneers with your host, Dr. Harpreet Singh at Harvard University. In this show, we speak with pioneers and thought leaders about workforce transformation, AI, and leadership in this exciting space. Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. We are introducing a new series entitled Future of the Joint Force, which will focus on innovations within the Department of Defense. As part of this endeavor, today we are excited to be speaking with Lieutenant Colonel Jennifer J.J. Snow. J.J. is the AFWORKS Chief Technology and Innovation Officer at the U.S. Air Force. She serves as a military representative for technology outreach and engagement bridging the gap between government and various technology communities to improve collaboration and communications, foster a culture of innovation, and guide the development of future technologies. She is a distinguished graduate of the Naval Postgraduate School. Her work has been presented to the members of the National Security Council, the White House, and key senior leaders across the DOD intelligence community an intra-agency to inform and highlight emergent risks and opportunities involving technology and technology-influenced environments. JJ, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Harpreet. I'm super excited about this series and uh, just delighted to be uh, able to contribute to what you're building here. A big fan of what Xperify has been doing and Harvard has been doing around innovation. So I'm excited to see innovation stories coming out of the the Defense Department and larger government allied partners too being featured in in this fashion. I think it's going to really highlight a lot of cool things that are happening that most people don't know about. We're very excited to have you here and uh, looking forward to learning more. So before we dig in uh, to more specific questions, I think it would be great if you could provide our audience with a bit of insight into how you've progressed into your current position. For instance, I noticed that your background is in the counterproliferation and counterterrorism areas, uh, working at many different levels, both in operational and training environments to include tours with special operation units uh, up to and including the US Special Operations Command. Can you tell us how you moved into technology and innovation fields and maybe a little bit about some of the things that made this transition easy and difficult given your background. Sure, I'd be glad to. It's kind of a funny story. Um, I was selected, fortunate enough to be selected to attend the Naval Postgraduate School. And um, when I was out there, we have to complete a capstone or thesis project. And so I've always been a technophile my whole career and, and I love science fiction, I love science fact. And so they had a Department of Energy rep that showed up and said, look, we really want somebody to work on additive manufacturing and some of these these emerging technologies and help us to understand the opportunities and risks. And so there were a few of us in the room and they they went through the briefing. And I said, well, I'll do it. Nobody else wanted to do it. And I I said, I'm all about this. So so let's tackle this and and take it on. And um, I've got to tell you, I had a blast. I was able to look at an entirely new set, I termed it radical leveling technologies, of technologies that were coming forward and really game changers. I mean, completely changing the verticals, um, very wide ranging and and impactful and and moving very fast. And um, 
this in turn got me an invite to the White House and to brief the National Security Council. And uh, that is what got me down to Special Operations Command to Softworks, the Donovan Group at the time led by uh, Navy Captain Phil Capusta. Um, they said, look, we're doing a lot around emerging technologies. We'd love to have you come down and interview and, and would you do a presentation? I went down and uh, Softworks, I'd never heard of it. I was really excited to see what they were building and, and just keen on all of these innovation hubs that were starting to spring up. And so I got down there and uh, this big bear of a man lumbers into the middle of the room and plunks down like a boulder. And uh, it was at the time, uh, then acquisition executive, uh, Mr. Jim Gertz, Hondo Gertz, and who's now secretary of the Navy, Hondo Gertz, and became a dear friend and mentor of mine. But I'm thinking to myself, oh gosh, I don't know who this guy is, but he looks important. And I hope he gets what I'm talking about. And not only did he get what I was talking about, but we ranged from distributed ledger and blockchain technology to the future of uh, nano and micro satellites to what we could do with additive manufacturing when it went multi-material and 4D printing. And he just boom, 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 right along. And I, I was sold, absolutely sold. And so I, I spent my first three years down there and then um, AFWorks was kind enough to reach out and say, hey, we love what you're doing as far as building out the ecosystem and working across all these different portfolios. Would you be willing to come up and, and do a three-year tour with us uh, in DC and, and do the same thing with our team? And I said, yeah, I'd be delighted to. And so that's how I got into innovation. Um, because I speak government and because I speak geek, uh, I translate very well between communities. And that's how I was working in the counterterrorism and the counterproliferation space as well. I could really dive deep on a lot of the different technologies and, and talk about them and then translate it in a meaningful way so that our commanders or so our teams understood why this mattered to them. And uh, so that made the transition, I think, a bit easier. Also, my work with special operations, because a lot of the work we do around foreign internal defense, when we're building um, partisan networks in foreign countries, it's all about bringing people together to solve problems jointly. Mm -hmm. We're working with them, we're training them, we're figuring out what matters and how we can help. And so all I'm doing now is, is foreign internal technology defense. <laughs> and that's, that's the main difference. I just took what I learned from the Green Berets and my time deployed and working with different villages and different countries and building that capacity with a new set of tribes, technology tribes here in the States. Um, I think the hardest thing for me, Harpreet, was... Um, getting used to the fact that I was outside of a classified space and I was not dealing with classified anymore. So everything was on class and there were windows and there were people all over the place. And that, that took a little bit of getting used to after being in, in a bunker more or less for 14 years. So that, that was the biggest change for me, but um, I'm just delighted to be part of this community. And I've been so inspired by the AFWorks team and by all of the other teams doing innovation across the DOD Ooh, I'm excited to hear that you'll be interviewing as follow-ons. I, I, I'm just so pleased with that. I, I think you're going to be tickled to hear what they've got going on as well. And, and, and we, we have uh, a lot to thank you for making many of those connections. Uh, so we were very grateful for that. <laughs> I'm grateful to do it. I am excited for their stories to be told because every day I talk to uh, different teammates uh, around the services here and then also around the world. And what they're doing is transformational. It's really powerful. It's really inspiring. And I'm excited for the public to hear about this too. That'll be great. So historically, innovation within the DOD and specifically the Air Force has resulted in many of our country's greatest achievements, whether you're talking about breaking the sound barrier, developing the first 
artificial communication satellite, uh, helping develop the space shuttle program or stealth technology, to name a few. Uh, the Air Force has been a critical part of innovation business since its inception. Now, being part of such a rich culture of innovation, what do you see as some of the current driving forces for the continued positive change in innovation within the Air Force? And do you see any obstacles to that change? Sure. Um, we do have a rich heritage in this area. And I, I think one of the things that makes the Air Force so effective as an innovative force is that we've always acknowledged and embraced the individual innovator, but also the units that are stepping forward um, to drive innovation in positive fashion too. That continues today um, in many different ways. One of the first ones I, I would say is we still look internally for innovative ideas and, and two of those areas, Spark Tank and Spark Collider, allow our military members to come forward, identify problems and then solve them with resources and our unique ecosystem. Um, I would say more recently, um, the additional emphasis placed on diversity and inclusion, that's been a powerful driving force for us. And I mean, beyond just age, gender, or race, I'm also meaning uh, diversity of experience or diversity of perspective here too. And so what we've done with this ecosystem to make sure that we're constantly staying uh, on the edge and, and pushing the envelope is to bring together interagency partners, sister service partners, and allied partners internally. And then externally, we're reaching out to private sector, academia, and then non-traditionals, hackers and makers. Um, if you had told me in 2014 that we would be working with hackers uh, in the government, I would have laughed about that. But we are, and to tremendous effect. We, um, we recently held the ethical um, DEF CONS hack a satellite event, and we had 100 teams of hackers from around the world start on May 22nd, and they actually completed a series of challenges to qualify for the top 10 positions and $100,000 worth of prizes. Um, the ultimate goal was to hack an Air Force satellite and take a picture of the moon and show that they could do that. And one of the teams did it winning a $50,000 prize. Uh, there was a $30,000 and a $20,000 prize given out for second and third places as well. But the point being, um, we had individuals that came in that had a depth of expertise because they live and breathe this specific space uh, that were able to show us vulnerabilities or new exploits that we weren't aware of. That made all the difference. So $100,000 in prizes saved us millions of dollars in space security and space safety. So just really, really tremendous. Um, and I love that the Air Force embraces this and has really put that emphasis on it. I, I think that's what is giving us such a powerful innovation ecosystem that continues to, to lead the charge for the DOD. Uh, as far as obstacles, I think the obstacles are very much the same as, as what you see in private sector around innovation. Um, if you fail to make innovation a priority, if you fail to put it into your strategy or your modernization plan, um, then those plans will fail too. At most, you'll get incremental change, but you're not going to get anything that's transformational or that's going to help you maintain that competitiveness uh, with whoever your adversaries are. Uh, I would also say, you know, we, we encounter the, the same mindsets. Technology is scary, change is scary. So you have the, the not made here syndrome. That's not unusual to encounter, you know, offices that feel like, oh, you're, you're trying to force a, a tech on me. And in many cases, we have to introduce it in such a way that it becomes a positive and it becomes something that amplifies their work 
and then it's a lot less scary and it's a, a lot less threatening for them. Um, I think I would also say uh, looking at policy uh, is, is a big challenge because in many cases, policy is either lagging behind the technology and it's not evolving with it, which causes friction, or it's lacking entirely. And we need to figure out a better way to um, talk about how to devise policy that keeps pace with the technologies that we're trying to implement. So I would say those are the main areas that, that we see as, as challenges and potential obstacles, not insurmountable if you're aware of them, but uh, definitely worth the discussion and, and making sure that people are tracking that, hey, these are things that we need to continually engage on. So if, if you look at the DOD strategy on AI, uh, you see an expectation that AI will have impacts into every corner of the department. Coupled with this fact, um, that the, you know, the very nature of AI is such that the rate of change in many ways faster than our current system is addressing those changes. So what, what are some of the tools that the Air Force is using to help address this very rapidly changing nature of AI, particularly with respect to minimizing barriers to access? So definitely AFWorks. Um, mm -hmm. AFWorks was designed to minimize those barriers. We're designed to go fast, to be agile, to implement new acquisitions mechanisms, and to really bring those problems to the forefront and address them as quickly as possible. Uh, I mentioned the, the Spark Collider and Spark Tank, which allows our airmen to come forward and identify problems that they're seeing in their operational life and team up with resources and private sector partners to solve them quickly. So, so perhaps um, it would be helpful to understand what is AFWorks for our audience. Oh, sure. Okay. So AFWorks is the innovation branch for the United States Air Force. We tackle the toughest challenges out there. No challenge is too big or too hard. Um, we will actually uh, have units come to us, but we'll also have commanders come to us and say, look, we need help. Um, one of the, the recent challenges that we just closed uh, and we're continuing to build on, on this effort is the base of the future. That took place at AFWorks Fusion uh, just last month. And this was looking at not just how to rebuild Tyndall Air Force Base, which was devastated by a, a Category 5 hurricane, but how to build it better and how to build it back in such a way that the technologies that we're using there are also transportable to other bases uh, and are creating solutions that maybe are going to help in mega city areas, might help in austere areas, may help with agriculture, might help with um, green technology implementation, uh, certainly will help with 5G in the future there. And so by bringing these different types of challenges into the Air Force and then um, coalescing that unique ecosystem around them, you see some really cool outputs that are starting to happen and that dual use path that benefits not just government, but also um, the public sector as well. And that's our, our ultimate goal. If we get it right, if we get our culture right, then we should be out of a job in the future because this will transmit everywhere and people will start doing this just as if it's, it's air that they're breathing. Um, so that's, that's AFWorks. That's who we are. We're, we're about 25 people and we're growing to about 60, um, almost all military. And um, we've got multiple. So I mentioned Spark Tank, which is really about enabling the airmen to come forward with problem sets. We also have um, AF Ventures, which is focused on bringing uh, public sector funds alongside private sector funds to drive those dual use solutions of interest. 
Um, we also have the Air Force Accelerator. The Air Force Accelerator is designed specifically to target critical technologies that our program managers are on the hunt for. Um, what do they need that they, they've got to have done this year and how can we quickly um, scout for and pull in an entire group of technologies that they can then go through, compete, and get into the hands of our airmen as fast as possible. And then the, I, I would say the last part is our physical space and our digital space. And this is where a lot of our challenges are happening and allow people from around the world to contribute. Um, we're really inclusive in how we do that too, which I think is a, and another factor that's very powerful. Um, everybody is allowed to come in as they are and participate in these spaces. And so if I have a conscientious objector that shows up and says, look, we want to work on a project with you, what do you have? Well, 80% of the work that we do is about making sure we don't get to a conflict situation to begin with. And there's a lot of work to be done there. So if they want to work on disaster recovery, if they want to work on humanitarian assistance, if they want to work on artificial intelligence that is helping us to make better decisions and better recommendations to our commanders and planners, that's exactly where we put them. So it's those kinds of um, those kinds of interactions, and I, I would say um, Air Force Research Lab is a big part of this too. And uh, since I know we're we're focused on artificial intelligence, um, let me list off three of the programs there that are helping us to break the barriers and make AI more accessible for our airmen. We have the uh, the Air Force Cognitive Engine. This program is uh, a do-it-yourself. Um, platform that allows airmen to come in and use artificial intelligence tools to operationalize AI for their requirements. And that might be preventative maintenance, that might be um, mobilizing, you know, a hundred additive manufacturing 3D printers around a specific project and you can control it from a push of a button. Uh, it might be um, taking acquisitions processes and tools and combining them into a collaborative effort that streamlines and finds efficiencies but they have the ability to go into this space and successfully do this. Um, another effort that we have is the advanced framework for uh, simulation, integration, and modeling. And this is all about looking at gaming engines and how artificial intelligence used in gaming engines can derive unique tactics and strategies for the future. And in this case, we're very much deep diving on what does that look like when the AI is pitted against a human, a human or human team? And what does it look like when you're pairing humans up with these different AI strategies and tactics that we're seeing happening inside the game engines? The final one, um, and this one I'm a big fan of, is called the, the Stratagem Project. And uh, the focus here is using artificial intelligence to assimilate a lot of data all at once, multiple data streams, sensors, uh, bring everything into a space during a very complex op operation to reduce the cognitive load on the planners and on the commanders, the decision makers, so that they can make the best decision possible. And in many cases, um, we find that by having an artificial intelligence entity that is streamlining the data for you based on what you need to know now, it makes the situation less chaotic and makes the decisions more reflective and you can also begin to understand second and third order effects of those decisions. And when that comes into play and you can see how those decisions may affect the future of the operation, where it's going, that becomes very, very powerful for us because then we can say, oh, we don't wanna go that way because if we go this way, it's, it's going to 
create a lot of issues. We're doing this with some unique weather models right now that are enabled with AI, potentially can give us up to 30 days uh, warning for a hurricane coming ashore and accurately predict where it's going to hit. So we have time to evacuate people. We have time to prepare the, the main zone that we know is going to you know, uh, be hit by the storm, the heaviest, the heaviest winds and surges and shore that up to reduce the amount of damage and then pre-place recovery teams and supplies in safe zones because we know where the storm is going. This is getting very exciting because now you're saving lives, but you're also protecting resources uh, and protecting spaces from extensive amounts of damage. This also helped in recovery operations too. So these are, these are some of the, the different ways that we're breaking down barriers to, mm -hmm. make, to make sure that we're bringing in the right emerging technologies and the right artificial intelligence to best benefit the force. Oh, that, that, that's a very rich culture you're building there, you, you know, leveraging these latest technologies. So th thinking uh, along those lines, uh, how do you bring people into that equation? How do you, uh, you know, obviously you need a very uh, technologically well-versed uh, set of uh, uh, folks who have deep expertise in these technologies. So how are you finding such people and, and uh, how are you retaining them? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so this is always the challenge. Anytime you want a depth of expertise and, and you want the best and the brightest, it's hard because you're competing with the private sector. And so um, what we've started to do is build programs that have some of the toughest challenges out there. These are, these are like the next generation of Manhattan Project. So I'll give you a great example, Defense Digital Service. I'm a huge fan. Uh, this brings in highly, highly qualified experts um, at a GS-14 or a GS-15 pay scale, so they're, they're senior civilians, into the Pentagon to solve coding problems for us, cybersecurity problems for us, data management problems for us, data science problems for us. And these are projects and programs that they get to pick. They report directly to the Secretary of Defense. They can turn down programs or, or project requests and say, no, this isn't worth our time and choose what they want to work on. We also are looking at how to make sure that we're getting them the training that motivates them to want to come in. Because one of the incentives is if you're going to work on the toughest problems, you want access to the latest technology, which means you also want access to the best training. So we've been reaching out to private sector partners that are doing work in this area around AI, around machine learning, and some of them have very compelling training programs. Um, there's one group that we looked at very closely out of New York and um, they are doing all of the cybersecurity training, but it's a fantastic model in that it uses AI machine learning to look at students from middle school on through high school, and they can register through whatever school they're in. They know that they want to work in a cyber field of some sort. In real time, they are able to train and demonstrate their skills, demonstrate their currency on a daily basis against what's happening right now in cyberspace. That's powerful because you can quantify their capability and immediately see where their skill set lies, where are their strengths, where are their weaknesses, where do they need to train more, um, or who's the rock star that you want to put out front on this big project because we know we've got to keep it moving fast. These are the ways that we can really draw people in and get them excited. The best technology, the toughest problems, the space to, to operate the way you need to operate and, and use your brain the way you know it works best. This is all coming together to create these specialized teams that are going to move 
um, the progress forward that, that we need to see for AI and for several other areas as well. Um, I, I am excited that you see these teams emerging across the Department of Defense and also that they're being used jointly because that shares best, best of breed technologies, lessons learned across spaces, and it's also reducing duplication of effort at the same time. It's very, very, um, it's very refreshing to see this because wow. before we had a lot of inner service rivalry and you don't see that now with innovation. You see a lot of us um, coming together to have that, that positive teaming effect Mm-hmm. and big dividends for the entire Department of Defense. No, that's great. And, and, and you're working with the NSF as well in a similar manner? Right. So NSF, uh, DARPA, If if um, I don't know if you saw it, but we had the Alpha Dogfight Challenge with DARPA this weekend where they, they pitted an F-16 human pilot against uh, an F-16 artificial intelligence entity. Um, you see a lot of these joint efforts that are beginning to happen. And not that they haven't before, but they're more pronounced now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think because in many cases, leadership is giving us a safe place to come together and team up on it. But they're also stressing the fact that, hey, resources are limited and we don't want to give you money to buy solutions. We want you to actually drive solutions and think about it and develop things that are going to work. Um, and so the resource restraints um, or constraints are intentional. Mm-hmm. And that is making us, I think, even more innovative because we have to think outside the box. We don't always have all the funds that we need. And um, it's, it's fun. It's actually a lot of fun to be in an environment like that because you have to MacGyver it, you know, duct tape and, you know, a pencil and, oh, I've got this robotic arm. Okay, let's make this happen. And, and you see a lot, of different, um, a lot of different outcomes that are low cost, but very powerful. We, we did one um, at Softworks that, I love to share it because we had a, a guy that, a uh, young guy that was there and, and we've had, I, I love the diversity that you get in this space because we had our youngest competitor that came in on a hackathon who was 13 and the oldest was 84. And that's really cool to see, you know, they're, they're talking about what they came up with and where their ideas came from and what they were inspired by. Um, but in this case, we were looking at countering improvised explosive devices that were using a passive IR detector, so the, the motion detectors that set off your garage, uh, open the door or, or set off, you know, the light. And they were attaching them uh, and placing them in the walls of uh, resettlement areas in Iraq. We didn't have enough robots or dogs to go in and clear all the spaces, and they were moving in and out of the spaces faster than we could get, um, to, get to clear them. And it's really intensive to have to use a robot to that level and examine every single aspect of, of, of the wall through a camera remotely. Um, and the Iraqis couldn't wait. They had people that needed homes and they said, hey, can you help us? And so there's this young man in the back and uh, I'll never forget this because he's sitting there very quietly, very thoughtfully. And then he just, he yells out bubbles. And I'm thinking, is that his name or is that, you know, his idea or, and uh, his idea was this, why don't we take a remote control car and put a, bubble machine on top of it and the hot swirling soapy bubbles will blow all over the room and will trigger the passive IR device and we thought well it might work let's try and if it didn't work and for less than $40 the Iraqi military could now use this technique to send in these these little remote control cars and make sure a home was safe before the family moved into it that's that's the kind of innovation that's the kind of outside the box thinking that I'm talking about when you get hackers and makers 
and government and interagency partners all into the same room. That's the kind of stuff that I love to see. That's a wonderful example of how innovative of a young person. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. And, and that's, um, I love that, that facet as well. Because we're so open to including everybody, that, that Big Ten philosophy of bringing everybody in, you get perspectives that you're not going to get in the military. I mean, we have 18 to 57-year-olds for the most part in the military. Um, you're not going to have a 13-year-old that comes in and says, hey, I'm designing this uh, prototype for a dog oxygen mask in case you need to jump out at 30,000 feet with a dog strapped to your chest and it has to have oxygen on so it can rebreathe. So what I did was I, I took red cups, like red solo cups, and I took other devices and put them all around the dog's muzzles in my whole neighborhood to try to fit them and to see what would work and what wouldn't work. And you don't have those kinds of discussions, but it's really important to the design. And this brings it, um, it brings it that realisticness because people are, are taking it out into the wild and testing it. And uh, that, that has helped us find so many solutions and from, from people that you would have never expected. And that, that's also really fun because I'm continually surprised and just so inspired by the different people that are coming into this space wanting to contribute in whatever way they, they're comfortable with and then making a, a big difference that is saving lives or saving resources or saving time. And uh, they get that smile on their face when they walk out and they know, wow, I did something really cool for my country today, or better yet, I did something really cool that's going to benefit the world today. Mm-hmm. Not many people can say that, you know, they, they've been able to do that, but I think we're opening the door for more people to come in and contribute in that positive way. Yeah, Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expropy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expropy.com for more information. So I want to invite my colleague, Adam Wood, uh, to come into the picture and uh, ask uh, a question. Hi, Adam. Hey, JJ. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you. You too. You too. Um, So jumping right into this, uh, a follow-on for the last question. Um, What are some of the tools or uh, processes that the Air Force is currently utilizing in order to help facilitate uh, some of the types of changes we've just discussed to its workforce and, and innovation? So definitely that, that big tent philosophy where we're creating collaborative open source spaces, um, digital spaces right now, we have physical spaces as well, but this has been um, really the core to, to what we're seeing um, as foundational to that innovative mindset and and to the innovative successes. So if we get the right people into the right space, we're able to develop um, 
artificial intelligence solutions, as well as that depth of expertise and that additional knowledge uh, that we need to then drop them into the wild and very quickly um, start moving them uh, into an operational space where the customer can tell us yes or no, this works or this doesn't work. And that kind of real world feedback is helping to keep our people at the cutting edge. It's helping to really drive their knowledge of what works and what doesn't work. And we're also challenging them, don't just come in with one computer language or one coding expertise. We want you to be able to pick up a book and try out any of them and see what works and what doesn't work. And so in these collaborative spaces, we're also having them interface with outside private sector programmers, hackers and makers, people that are, are bringing that, um, that depth of perspective as well. Um, you also see a lot of um, different groups like Kessel Run, like Defense Digital Service, like AFWorks, like DIU uh, coming into play. And the problems that we're bringing are also part of honing and fine tuning those skills because you're not going to find challenges like this anywhere else. This is, this is, it's unique in all the world. It's unique what we're doing. And so the best and brightest come in and, and play with us around these challenges, whether that's hacking a satellite or hacking an air force jet uh, and showing us what they can do and then bringing those skills into this open collaborative environment so that everybody can benefit. And one way we're really, um, sharing these lessons learned and making sure that we're elevating the entire Department of Defense at the same time is through the, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, the Jake. <laughs> I was just going to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> they are fantastic. So um, I, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the national mission initiatives and some of the component mission initiatives that we're doing. Uh, for those that aren't, uh, the first two that we took on were preventative maintenance and uh, humanitarian assistance disaster recovery. These are missions that are shared across the force. They also happen to be great training missions. If you wanna start teaching people about artificial intelligence and getting them smart fast, this is the best way to do it. And so we have people that are more skilled in one area than another. And so they're teaming up and we have them partnering and sharing those skills. And then we tell them, hey, swap around. You know, you know C++, you know Python, you know Java. Everybody swap around and teach each other what you know. And then we're seeing these really cool mashups happen um, where people are coming up with new kinds of code and figuring out how to tie AI models together. They're legoizing them in really unique ways that are finding new efficiencies and again, elevating everybody's skill to that next level. Um, the Joint Common Foundation, that's the operational space. Uh, it's a cloud enterprise environment that the Jake is using right now to accurately accelerate, design, test, um, all of these different models and these AI applications across the DOD. And that allows everybody to plug and play. And so if the Air Force comes in and says, hey, I have this really cool AI solution that's going to help streamline our logistics for Operation X. And the Navy says, well, actually, we're doing something over here. Let's put that together and you get Reese's peanuts, peanut butter cups, right? So peanut butter <laughs> chocolate, and it turns out to be fantastic. So, and then at the same time, we're throwing some M&Ms into the mix because we've got, you know, that partnering with private sector, um, with the academia, the, the schools, the university have been fantastic. And then non-traditionals and they're lending that deep expertise, that access, and then also um, the awareness of what's next. And so, that way we can keep our AI workforce right at the bleeding edge, always ready for what's next. 
Yeah, and and I'm glad that you brought up Reese cups and M and M's. Favorites. <laughs> Are you hungry now? <laughs> nah, fa- favorites. Yeah, um, but you know, I think that you actually answered um, a, a portion of my next question, which was, you know, from a force field analysis standpoint, the driving forces. I think, you know, we've identified some of those with the Jake and uh, the National Security Council for AI. Um, uh, just finished a, a white paper over the weekend, a draft for the GSA AI working group. And so I think that, you know, driving forces for change, we've identified those. And if I recall the, the conversation a, a bit earlier, some side constraints or restraining forces, uh, budgetary limitations uh, are always going to come into play to some extent, of course. Um, but, you know, I think that to the extent to which, you know, my next question would basically, you know, as a segue, would go relative to your current role, uh, as we've discussed, I would imagine you have to continue and and you have continued uh, to work with so many different entities, both inside and outside of government, um, U.S. governmental partners, the DOD, uh, IC partners, industry, uh, now academic institutions. Um, could you talk just a little bit uh, about what those interactions look like, um, how you support them, what the process is in supporting them? Um, it could be you know, uh, relative to acquisitions at OTA, uh, or it could be just in general, what do you uh, look to ask for help in um, and for guidance from those, from those different institutions? So it is, it's, it's a diverse group and, and I love it because I'm meeting new people every day. Uh, before I jumped on the call today, I, I've already had six different phone calls, um, all kinds of amazing solutions. Uh, one of them was uh, providing tools around bias that can help you to identify bias, um, whether that's in an organization or whether that's in documentation. And the cool thing about it is for the first time, it takes a narrative um, that shares the bias that everybody has, regardless of gender, age, or race, helps us to individually reflect and grow. And then that tool gives you a way forward to start solving it in a non-polarizing fashion. So these are the kinds of things that I get really excited about because we've, we've got 37 different portfolios we're covering and, and it's something new every day. I, you know, I might be talking about space or human performance enhancement or you know, additive manufacturing or quantum communications. All of these things are coming into play with these different experts around different challenges. So internally, it's really, um, looking at interagency partners, sister service partners, allied partners, um, and then finding those cross-cutting collaborations, problem spaces that we all share and how we can team up smartly around those. And we do bring different bits and and parts of of expertise to bear, as well as different acquisition mechanisms. You mentioned the OTAs, uh, DIU is fantastic with that. That is their ballywick. They really just knock it out of the park all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Us, we do a lot with SIBRs and STTRs. So SIBRs are focused around bringing small businesses in, giving them $50,000 for their phase one to find an Air Force sponsor. If they find a sponsor, then they could do a direct to phase two. And at that point, Air Force Ventures might get involved and bring in additional funding. So the command, for example, we had a, it was a a heads up display for an F-35 helmet. Um, The command said, look, we're really excited about this. We want to put $300,000 down. Uh, the SIBR said, great, we'll match $300,000. And then we had a private sector partner come in and say, well, we'll put another $600,000 down. 
And let's let's start with that. Let's start with 1.2 and then move out from there. Mm-hmm. Um, you also see um, our external partners, so academics, um, private sector, non-traditionals, our hackers and makers, and they're bringing in really unique uh, expertise. And, and that's what we're relying on them for because internally, we all have our missions. We can't get deep on additive manufacturing or we can't get deep on refueling satellites in low earth orbit, but somebody out there is, and they can tell us the art of the possible and having them in the room, invaluable to these discussions. So when we bring in the, the, the private sector, so our external partners and our internal partners, and we're aligning them uh, around specific problem sets, that's where we get some incredible innovation. So you'll see them come into play um, around specific challenges that we host. We also have our annual fusion event, which is usually something really big, like Base of the Future this year. Um, we'll do hackathons, like we did at DEF CON, where we want to understand the vulnerabilities in a specific platform or system. And then um, at the same time, because we're doing this open source, our external partners are also benefiting from that. So not only are they joining our ecosystem and gaining connections, they're also gaining the experience and the case studies and the lessons learned. We had a, a great um, event that we hosted with the, uh, with the Army around cyber requirements for the future. And so I brought in 10 hackers and uh, they came in and we're going through, you know, here are these requirements and this is, you know, the latest and greatest and this is what we had. And I have one guy in there and he's, he's fantastic, uh, Chris Roberts, and, and he, he jumps up and he's like, well, actually I can do this, this and this on my phone today. And they're like, what? Those types of insights are invaluable. They're tangible, they're powerful, and they make it real. And once people realize, oh my gosh, the technology has moved that far in the last 18 months, okay, now we really need to revamp and figure out. And having those bright minds in the room, that helped us to get to the right answers, to fix those vulnerabilities. And they were there for free. We covered food, travel, and lodging at the government rate, everything else they did for free. And we've actually done that on a number of occasions where we've reached out with different systems and said, hey, hacker network, maker network, we need help on this. And they've come back in a matter of days, identified all the vulnerabilities, told us how to strengthen it for free because it's a tough problem and because they understand, here's how we can contribute. Um, This year around COVID, you have the Cyber Threat Intelligence League. Adam, this was incredible. You've got 1,400 civilian volunteers in... 70 countries and 22 time zones, and they are working around the clock in concert with government, interagency partners, military partners around the world to protect hospitals, to protect government centers, to protect Wi-Fi enabled medical devices. Um, and they're doing this for free. They, they reached out to the government. They said, look, we can help you guys. We have accesses that you don't have. We, we have capabilities that you don't have. And there's some of the best and brightest from the private sector that also happen to be ethical hackers that volunteered their time. And that was really beautiful to see. And, and specifically, as, as we're looking at, at you know, bringing these different communities together uh, in powerful ways, uh, we've just seen some tremendous results. And I think that's because we do have such a diverse population, so many bright minds. We are enabling agile acquisitions. And at the same time, um, we're moving very quickly forward because we have the space to do so. We have the leadership top cover that allows us to do so. Um, And this is something that's near and dear to my heart. I've seen the power of positive thinking um, when you have all of these diverse perspectives in the space. 
and how successful that can be, especially when you're confronted by a critical challenge that has to be solved today. Um, so I appreciate you asking that question, Adam. Um, this, is, this is something that I think is the main reason why AppWorks is so successful at what we do and why many of the other innovation units that you see are also equally successful. They're not afraid to bring in outside entities or sister service and interagency partners to team up on the tough stuff. Absolutely. Um, thank you again for taking the time to, uh, to answer those questions. I'm going to kick this back to Harpreet now. We know that China in recent times has been outspending us when it comes to AI, even on the defense side. Uh, and, and the global landscape obviously is evolving quite rapidly. So how does that landscape influence uh, what DOD and the Air Force are doing uh, in the AI space specifically? And, and what are the, some of the tools that are being utilized? I, you know, you've obviously mentioned a lot about around crowd, crowdsourcing uh, and the like, uh, but are you also utilizing common data frameworks, standards, the cloud? Uh, yes. so how are you beginning to evolve with, with, with that global competition? Definitely, that's a great question. And we do, we have, we have common data standards and we're looking at, you know, how can we leverage a strong foundation in data science to do smart data management for our, our data lakes? And then also uh, data sharing and streaming across spaces to those artificial intelligence projects that are benefiting the Air Force, but also benefiting whole Department of Defense. Um, some of that will require some changes in architecture and connectivity. Some of it will require some new standards and we're thinking through that with private sector advice and help. Um, but we have some incredible people at the helm there. You know, Dave Spurk just came up to be the, the new DOD uh, Chief Technology Officer from Special Operations Command. And I had the pleasure to work with him. And he has some amazing ideas about the right path forward in this space. Um, I would say the most important discussion that we have when considering artificial intelligence and um, where it's headed next is really AI is a game changer. And it has a first mover advantage that when advanced enough will also be the last mover advantage, which means for good or for ill, whoever controls that artificial intelligence uh, will control that vertical or that set of verticals. And that might be an individual, it might be a, a nation state, it might be a, a corporation, we don't know. But because we haven't had the, uh, the discussions around this, we've talked about it here and there, but we haven't had an Asilomar event. We haven't had somebody say, look, we need to get together and decide what does AI look like on the battlefield? What are the laws of armed conflict that should apply to this? Um, what is the ethical use of AI as a competitive form of, I don't know, uh, economic, um, an economic tool, or, or if you're in a, a, an economic space, how does this now translate to a new form of governance or how does that impact competition in that space? Does a monopoly form? Is there a, a new type of structure that takes place? And what happens if that structure or those owners don't align with, align with your ethics and values? And we haven't had those important discussions. And that's scary. I think we need to talk about that a lot more because um, when that happens, you won't be able to react because the decision will have been made that AI will come into being 
And I, I don't think it will be a Skynet that will be all encompassing, but I do think it will leverage successful control over specific areas of technology or specific areas um, in business uh, or governance. And when that happens, the people that are in charge, the organizations that are in charge and own that AI will have the insight and the foresight to beat out any of the competition that's chasing them. So there are no fast followers in that case. Um, so having these discussions right now, I think that's probably paramount. Um, I would put that before anything else that, that we would talk about um, because we, we can structure data and we can get everything set the, the way we need to, but if we're not keeping tabs on, okay, well, this is what China is doing and do we really want an artificial intelligence entity that is controlling populations and is using QR codes on their apartment doors or on the sleeves of their clothes to tell us, you know, this is who can enter this space and this is who is restricted from that space. Um, I don't want to see that happen here. I, I don't want to see that happen anywhere. So having these kinds of uh, aggressive discussions, honest discussions at a global level, really, really important really important. And I, I would say that's the, the biggest um, takeaway from, from my experience talking with experts in this area. The thing that they're most concerned about, making sure that we're all on the same page when it comes to the global application of artificial intelligence. Oh, very true. I think the, the, the ethics question is, is almost, you know, asked as a afterthought, right? It's not really uh, part of the main discussion. So it's, it's very important that we, we engage with those kind of difficult questions as well. Uh, so, yeah. so part of thinking about AI is also thinking about how do we train or upskill talent in the space? Mm -hmm. So how, how do you, um, in, in the broader department, uh, uh, engage in upskilling? Um, do you find it challenging? Um, what, what are some of the lessons you've learned? So it definitely is because we want to draw top talent. And in order to do that, you've got to have the, the best technology and the, the toughest problems. Um, and we're competing against, you know, the private sector and they have some very compelling problems and some amazing technology. So, but I, I would argue our national labs do too. Um, and, you know, I, check out Air Force Research Labs. They have Lab Life, which is a fantastic podcast and talks about the latest and greatest and also puts a humorous spin on it. Um, but it's really insightful. I think a lot of people uh, aren't aware of that. We're doing a, a, trying to do a better job to highlight the opportunities that exist within the national lab structure and then also within the services too. A lot of people don't think of us as driving science um, and yet we are. And there are incredible opportunities to engage uh, through a variety of, of service uh, partners, national lab partners and interagency partners. Um, I would say, you know, in addition to trying to draw the, the top technology um, minds in to participate in these spaces, you know, I already mentioned policy as lacking, lagging or lacking. That's always going to be a challenge until we, we decide to fix it. Um, I also would say, you know, um, making sure that uh, we've got that piece addressed as far as uh, bringing technology in thoughtfully so that it's complementary to what exists. And we found that um, the not made here syndrome is easily overcome when you bring it in as an adjacent or a parallel innovation. Because what happens is you're not going into an office space and convincing people that, um, hey, you want this technology and we're telling you you want it because it's better than what you have now. Um, that often is a turnoff because people automatically, when you come in, like that, they see it as a threat to what they're doing. They see it as 
uh, you're telling us we're doing something bad or something wrong. Instead, when you come in and you say, hey, you're, you're absolutely rocking it, you're doing amazing work, and check it out, we've got this new technology, we're going to give it just to you, we want you to try it out and tell, you, tell us what you think. When that happens, you start to see this slow adoption. And eventually, you know, these people realize, wow, this saves me two to three hours a day versus that old system. And they start to talk about it. And then a few more people adopt it. And finally, you reach the tipping point. And at that point, then you can see us overcoming the, those barriers. So I, I think that's, that's really important to, to getting the right talent into the space, too. Um, I would argue the ethics and values discussion are also equally important because if we don't have um, a diverse uh, talent base, what happens on the back end is we wind up building artificial intelligence models and solutions that are very fragile. They're very brittle. Um, they may only be usable in certain circumstances because they may be so biased in other areas because they've been built by a fairly homogeneous team that they're blinded in certain circumstances and that makes them unusable or of limited use. Um, I think the other big challenge that we will have is acknowledging uh, humanity as it is versus humanity as we would like it to be. And especially with AI, because AI is like a child. When you code for it and you build it, even if you have biases and you don't realize you have these biases, that artificial intelligence will reflect that. It comes out. And so we have to have some ability to really do a hard look at ourselves and um, identify where we're falling short and where um, the, the, the dark and the light lies and where those biases exist and, and really tackle those. And I think having diverse teams helps you to do that. It removes the blinders, it opens the aperture, it reduces the bias, and it makes sure that whatever AI we're building is the best that it can be and it's going to be effective. And we know this because we have a non-homogeneous team that's coming from all different backgrounds, all different life experiences, many different perspectives. And when they come together, that AI can not help but be the conglomeration of that team. That's what we need more of. And I hear that uh, from a lot of our private sector um, partners. And they say, we would love to team with you, but we worry about uh, the diversity that's being brought to bear. And we think that the AI might not be as successful if you're not diverse enough. And so that's always going to be a challenge. But again, it's one that I think we can overcome if we're thoughtful um, and, and we're really uh, perspective about how we're, we're cultivating that talent and how we're getting people to come in. Um, I would also say the, the other challenge is reluctance to trust automated uh, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. There's a big fear there and that's been because of real world and, and we've seen um, cases of both. However, I also think that there's a certain point in time when we need to really consider how artificial intelligence can be enabled to operate on certain tasks by itself. And, and one case that came up recently was a discussion of hypersonics. If you're dealing with a hypersonic weapon that um, is coming at a base or coming at your fleet, um, as a human being, my mind is not going to move fast enough to devise a targeting solution for all of those weapons that are coming in that fast. But an artificial intelligence entity can. Um, and it's, it's much like war games. Um, if you think about it, and the AIs are both operating on the, the same page, they're both operating at the same level, eventually um, they're going to negate each other in those games. And, and we see some of this happening um, 
as we're looking at certain gaming engines and, and games playing games, um, that may not be a bad thing. That might actually result in more diplomatic solutions in the future and less conflict solutions. So there, there's that to think about as well. Um, but I, I think there is a discussion where we have to make people comfortable with the technology, make the technology familiar uh, so they're not afraid of it. I, I remember when um, microwaves came out and everybody, when I was a kid, told me, oh, you can't eat that food, you're going to get cancer from it or weird things are going to happen. And no, it was a new technology. We just had to get used to it. Um, so I, I think it's the same thing. It, it's important to have the right narrative and make people understand that it's a tool and it's not something to be feared, but we do need to understand how it impacts um, government, how it impacts society and be mindful of that at all times when we're implementing it. No, that, that, that's a, a very powerful thought there. And, uh, you know, really appreciate your joining us today and being so open about the culture and of innovation that you're, you're fostering at the Air Force. Thank you, Harpreet. And it was such a delight to join you and Adam here. I'm so inspired by what you're doing. I thank you for what you're doing because there are so many amazing stories that are happening inside of the government, inside of the Defense Department that need to be heard um, that, that aren't necessarily being heard. And, and I'm excited for, for the public and the world to hear about them because I think they're going to be inspired, as inspired as I am on a daily basis. That's what gets me out of bed. I jump right out in the morning like, okay, what are we doing today? That's the best feeling ever. So thank you again for having me and, and just really appreciate the opportunity to contribute to what you're building. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and also tell your colleagues and friends about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode with yet another pioneer shaping the future of work.